This is Lifetime Sentence, the podcast where we watch bad Lifetime original movies and compare them to the truly heinous stories that inspired them. Because sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Hey, so how's it going? (sighs) Well, this giant glass of wine and I could tell you a story. I understand that it... But instead, we're going to tell you a different story. Great. Um... I have turned to my vanilla peach ghost alcohol beer. It's delicious. Um, it's yeah. like not having alcohol at all, but it's delicious. Yes. I am going to need you to post me some of that. Okay. Just drop it in the mail. Perfect. Give it to me. Thank you. With some soap. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know. Man, did you see my new all black soap? I'm so proud of that. Yes. I love it. I think the next one I'm going to do that's all black, I'm going to um, put a lace imprint on top. Ooh, that's cool. Right? I'm getting so fancy. Oh my God, do you want to see? So I told you that I bought this, but they came today. Oh, I can't wait because I don't remember what you said you bought. Oh, yeah. So what dance shoes do you use? Okay, so I grew up using Capizios because... Okay. These are not Capizios because I was not going to pay Capizio price, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, those are just like an off-brand. And actually, I need to stretch them out so that I can put them on my feet. Like, I can get them on, but they, they don't stay on. So. Gotcha. They See, need time. They need time. My tap shoes are block. And Sarah's point shoes are Grishko's. Hmm. I always grew up with Capizios. I... I never have problems with them. My, I know other people don't like them, but I do. My The taps that I learned in were like the baseline Capizios. And they yeah. were fine, but um, I preferred the bed of the block. Yeah. And I can't wait. I mean, I haven't had tap shoes since I was seven, so I can't, I wait can't really my, tell you about that. Right. I can't wait for my floor to come in. I also signed up for a... Um, I need to get a floor. Like, you're the one that reminded me, like, I need to get a floor. (laughs) Because I have carpet. Like, what the fuck am I going to do in here? Well, I'll send you the link to the place where I'm getting my tap floor. I don't know if they have something you can use for ballet or if you can use the floor. Um, But mine's like an off-brand Marley. Because I'm not paying Marley prices for my living room tap workout. Yeah, again, like I'm trying to uh, just work out my feet and do something that I really enjoy for a little bit of, you know, joy in my life. And um, and also to, I guess, feed the cat my toe tips. Right, right. Naturally. Um, um, but she's eating right now. That's fine. They're rubber. She'll be fine. Perfect. <laughs> so I texted you something that I wanted to talk about at the top of this episode. Um, So my favorite murder does this thing where at the top of every episode, they talk about like the good media they're taking in and things like that in their lives. And while I don't necessarily think that we have to structure everything after them, I do like that because it's just a hint of like positivity at the top. And then, you know, we tell these really dark, awful stories. So, um, I have this story was great until I got to the end and then I was like what the fuck oh okay mine goes darker a little earlier than that um okay so first of all you and I talked briefly tonight about the Jody Arias documentary that's on Lifetime holy shit and I can't wait to watch it 
Okay, I'll pique your interest. Okay. Just for funsies. Um, in the opening sequence, they're interviewing these two women that used to be cellmates with Jody. Yeah. And the two women were like, yeah, people used to think we um, had some kind of like threesome thing going on. And the producer from off camera is like, well, did you? Uh-uh. And she just, the girl just like, just smiles. She's like, <laughs> uh-uh, man, I cannot wait to watch this. I do have it DVR'd. It's so good. The tea is scalding. It's so good. Well, that was one of my favorite episodes we ever recorded. Oh, she's yelling at Juniper. So that was one of my absolute favorite episodes. I remember laughing yes. so hard at the coffee quote. And just that whole movie was like lifetime perfection. It was one of my better researched ones. And then this week, I guess maybe, maybe serendipitously, but probably more in alignment with this um, documentary coming out. Uh, the last podcast on the left is doing Jody Arias this week and next week. And their coverage is so good. Um, and so I just want to say y'all should give that a listen. Their research is always a lot better than mine. To be fair, researching is their full-time job. And, um, you know, they devote two and three weeks to one topic. So they get to put in a lot more research. Um, I'm going to have to listen to that. Because, and I don't know what it is. And, and this goes back like, really way back to like the title of my favorite, like my favorite murder. This, I am obsessed with this case. I, I don't know why this case just does it for me. It's so fucked up. And she is such a crazy narcissist. And even just from watching that documentary, she's still an insane narcissist. Oh, and it's I have just, no doubts. Uh, it's incredible. I just can't, you know, well, I would say, I just can't believe someone can go to prison and still be a narcissist, but that's not true. Right. So, um, <laughs> uh, Sorry, yeah, there are so I many layers. I just keep Aries getting hit in the gut. Prison and is still a narcissist. Right. I said there are just so many layers to that sentence that it just kept hitting me. Like every time I thought I was done laughing, I got hit in the gut again. Um, yeah. The other thing I want to talk about is... <laughs> at least for the next 43 days before Trump decides that he's going to throw his hissy fit and cancel TikTok. I don't think it'll happen. Microsoft has offered to buy it. But um I don't think it'll happen because it's a an extremely slippery slope and a very dangerous precedent to set for our freedom of speech. Yep. As as dumb as TikTok is, and I get it, like it's a frivolous app, but just think about if they if they set the precedent that they can ban apps. They're limiting your freedom to information and they're limiting your freedom of speech, which is like, uh, like the shit that the constitution was based on. Yep. Um, so yeah, but I discovered a trend on TikTok that I just want to tell everyone about because I think you will love it as much as I do. Um, so it's two, um, Ava Vox's song Kings and Queens, which I really love this song. But it is a mm -hmm. bunch of women from around the world who are wearing the traditional garb of their um, cultures. And Mad. so they, um, they've set it up to duet with each other. And so it's all these women from all around the world wearing these beautifully extravagant dresses from all the cultures. And I love all the African wear um, and how different it is from region to region. Um, 
And then there are a couple of videos where somebody has taken all of them and mashed them all up together. And so you can just see all the women who have put in everything from Western Russia to, um, like I said, like South Africa and then other African territories and um, just these gorgeous and empowered women in these beautiful outfits that are culturally relevant and incredible and just I love this movement so much and you know I'm all for um yeah being as empowering of women as possible and just these I love clothing and I just think the whole thing is incredible so that's my five minutes of how much I love this 30 second clip of music (laughs) (laughs) um hold on let's Okay, I'll go through that later. I'm sorry, I'm distracted. You're fine. Okay, so you want me to tell you about this movie? Well, first, this is Lifetime Sentence, Mm. and I'm obsessed with TikTok. And I'm afraid that we live under a dictatorship. Oh, this week I said something about our dictator to my dad, who is generally pretty conservative in his life. And he goes, look, nobody likes him, but you don't have to call him a dick. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. (laughs) You're like, that's how I soften the blow. I added the tater. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay, hold on. Let me just text this person and I'll call them in just a little while. Okay, we're back. This week I watched Sleeping with Danger. Which, um, Lifetime, it's... let me snaps for you because that's a good title. Right? Um, it stars Elizabeth Rome. She plays Grace. She looks exactly like Kate Hudson. Really? To me, yes. Um Every time she came on screen, I was like, wow, she looks like Kate Hudson. Um, the, she was from American Hustle, Joy, Miss Congeniality 2, and Angel. Okay. The Buffy spinoff. So lots of like um, people that I would know. Antonio Cupo. He plays Paul. And you will remember him from episode 76, Daughter for Sale. Oh, yeah. Pretty recently. He played the bad guy in that movie. She does look like Kate Hudson. Holy moly. Right? And then finally, I have an assignment for everyone. Okay. (laughs) Um, The best friend, whose name is Sherry, but I just call her Sassy, Sassafras, whatever. Um, She's not billed in the IMDb, and she's the best character in this entire fucking movie, and I'm very upset about it. Well, that sucks. Yeah, I'm super mad. Um, And uh, if anyone can tell me who she is, well, I'll post her picture on our Instagram. And if you can tell me who she is, uh, you get my undying love and affection. But she's super rad, and I want to have brunch with her. Um, I just want to say, like, at the top, Um, I have been in an abusive relationship and I know how the cycle of abuse works. And I know that none of this is this character's fault. But I'm going to scream every time she goes back to him. It's going to make me crazy. So I just wanted to let you know. Good. 
Good. Um, so it's Oregon, 1994. Um, a blonde lady runs through the woods. She voiceovers. I hope it's her anyway. If not, this is a very confusing movie. Um, <laughs> about looking into the eyes of a man who swore to love and protect you and hearing him say, I'm going to kill you. Um, I don't like that. Yeah. And then we get the title card and rules sleeping with danger. Hold on one second for me. Okay. Um, By the way, I did read chapters one through the end of Mortal Danger, which is the um, book from which the story comes. And so it was one of those weeks where, like, remember when we first started the podcast and I said, now I don't have time to read all these books. And that was a lie because every time it's been based on a book, I've read the whole book. So. Yep, I sure do. Um, okay. So we get the title card and rules sleeping with danger. Five years earlier, the woman is a flight attendant or is just really obsessed with how flight attendants dress. There's no way to know. Um, there's a guy laying in her bed. Ooh, he's a pilot. So I guess he, she is a flight attendant. Um, they talk about seeing each other again and then she heads out for her flight. She goes home. She has framed pictures of her cat on the table, which isn't too terrifying, I guess. Mm. Okay. Mm. It's her. Th- oh, she has a super nice apartment. Um, and I just wrote, do flight attendants make a lot of money? And I just didn't know. They did. During this time period. In the 90s? So she was not a flight attendant in the 90s. Oh, well, this movie takes place in 1994. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Um, It's her 38th birthday, so she and her sassy friend go out for cocktails and a pep talk about how she's not totally wasting her life. Is this the girl who played the best friend? No. Okay. I don't think so. Um... Uh, da, da, da. So they have a pep talk about how she's not totally wasting her life. She has value, etc. Her sassy friend is like, well, if you want your eulogy to be longer, you know what you could do? You could cure cancer. And that would totally like uh, shorten for you. Um, so they decide to, they're going to take better care of themselves. Um, the next day, Grace goes to see a nutritionist. She meets Dr. Paul, who is hot, but weird. Um, Duly noted. Grace is afraid of needles, so Dr. Paul distracts her by having her look into his eyes and connect with him. Great. I hate it. Um, yeah. Later, Grace is at home reading in her satin pajamas while sexy music plays. And I was like, is this what people thought think women do when they're home alone? Don't y'all? Yeah, I'm always wearing my sexiest pajamas (laughs) while I read a book. And with my satin sheets and pillowcases. Well, that's a thing. (sighs) Satin sheets give my hair, like, staticky. Really? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's Dr. Paul calling to check in on her at 10 o'clock at night. Well, why not? Soup's normal. 
they flirt a little and Dr. Paul sticks his foot in his mouth a few times and then they hang up. Um, that wasn't awkward at all. Um, Grace tells her cat to stop reading into things. Dr. Paul was just checking on her. So. Okay. Now she talks to her cat. But by the end, I'm very invested in the cat's survival. So. Right. <laughs> um. Uh, Grace tells her, oh no, sorry. It's happy hour with Sassafras again, but Grace doesn't drink because she's being healthy now. Sassy points out that Grace totally has a crush on Dr. Paul. Naturally, Grace wears her finest flannel house coat to their next appointment. Okay. It was not a good look. Great. I think it was supposed to be a dress, but maybe it was, she looked like an Amish person. Maybe it was a kimono like I'm currently wearing. <laughs> a flannel kimono. <laughs> yeah. The original flannel kimonos of the 90s. mid-century Japan. <laughs> um, I guess we talked about that on Patreon and not here. So short story. Yeah. Uh, a company sent me what they called a kimono that is definitely just a jersey knit bathrobe. And while I found the appropriation culturally offensive to call this a kimono, um, I've had a good laugh at it. So, yeah. Also, it's very comfortable. Oh, yes, it so. is. <laughs> um... Dr. Paul asks her to lunch to have green smoothies and salad. Ew. Then he asks her to teach him something. So she's like, well, energy is contagious, whether it's positive or negative. And I just want to know, is that not a thing that's common knowledge? Um, additionally, if this asshole is inviting me to drink green smoothies and tells me to teach him something, I'd be like, I can teach you how to make a burger. Let's go to the store right now. Like, have I slid too far down the hippie rabbit hole? And I like I, people don't know that energy is definitely contagious. Uh, you know, considering that there are entire swaths of Americans who think COVID-19 isn't real, much less contagious. We can't even guess anymore. It's true. Okay. Um, do, do, do. Uh, da, da, da. Grace. Oh, Dr. Paul. Oh, so one of other one of Dr. Paul's other clients, Tom, comes in raving about his program. Dr. Paul promises that he's not a cult leader, which sounds exactly, exactly like, like what a cult, a cult leader, leader, would, leader would, say. would say. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Grace goes home that night and lays in bed hoping Dr. Paul will call. But when her phone rings, it's just the phone company asking her about her long distance plan. At her next appointment, Dr. Paul tells her everything looks good and he's going to miss seeing her every week. Finally, he tells her that he can't stop thinking about her, even though it soups unprofesh. Then he kisses her. Then it cuts to him, to them in falling into bed and i just want to know how many silk robes can one woman have ne there are never enough it makes me want to go buy some actually um we have a full-on in-bed montage so apparently they spend the next 400 years having sex listen if you got it flaunt it i mean good for them um 
So she checks into her room one night and Paul calls talking about how much he misses her. They get disconnected, but then there's a knock at the door and it's Paul. Grace voiceovers that she never understood what true love was until she met Paul, which is like uh, said over like uh, a video of him basically going down on her. And I was like, well, there it is. True love is orgasms. (laughs) That is absolutely true love's kiss. (laughs) Oh, man, I miss True Love's Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) They finally go to a party one night with Sassafras. Paul tells a stupid story about rescuing a bird. Um, She sees, uh, Grace sees that old pilot she used to sleep with. I love how cynical you are. What? He tells a stupid fucking story about a bird. like sits in this party and tells him how he he rescued this bird but he couldn't stand to think of it living in a cage for the rest of its life so he set it free that's not even an interesting story sir find a better one that's stupid is what it is okay um anyways um the tile the pilot gets like a little touchy like he just kind of touches her arm and it doesn't seem like a big deal but paul feels differently he drags grace out by the arm to go fight about it in the stairwell finally he's feel he realizes he's being the worst and apologizes but he earns a warning from me you might want to hang on to that single warning well, um, yeah, he's going to violate the warning in a, the next sentence. So here we go. Oh, great. They have some makeup sex, which involves Grace in a suit that she slowly takes off and then climbs on top of it. And she goes, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So you better fasten your seatbelt. Uh, is, is that how role playing works? Because I've been doing it way wrong. Yeah, same. Also, is it? If you are a flight attendant, is it sexy to do the flight attendant thing? Right? You know, like... I have questions. <laughs> I don't... I don't find the idea of playing doctor sexy like many people do. So I bet it's probably the same no. thing. Although the things that I do find sexy in role-playing are probably weird to other people. So it's fine. Yeah, no, um, no kink-shaming here. I just don't... No. I've just never done that um, one. But with this particular makeup sex, things go quickly off the rails and get super rough. And there's nothing wrong with rough sex. I just want to point that out. Oh, no, absolutely not. But this seems unexpectedly rough to Grace. Um, he rips her shirt and chokes her, which are things you probably shouldn't do unless you've talked about it before. Yeah, that's a no from me, dog. And establish, like, some consent to, like, boundaries and, uh, you know, just the usual. Can you stop talking crazy here? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Grace gets some pretty rowdy sex bruises, which, again, can be fun. But not when you don't want them. Um, when she gets home from her flight the next day, Paul has flowers and is all excited Grace isn't super happy, though. She shows him the bruises, and he totally flips out and is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. We won't do any more role-playing, because that was the problem. Yep. Um, well, he she did say it was going to be a bumpy ride, so it's all her damn fault. 
Yeah. It is not um, her fault. Then he shows her this big surprise, right? He She comes in, she's like, I have a huge surprise for you. And then they fight about things. And then he shows her this surprise. This surprise is Nutristave. It's what? It's protein powder. Um. Okay, I've been doing everything wrong. <laughs> if Sarah thinks that at the end of a fight, the way she's going to salvage the relationship for that moment is by giving me a canister of protein powder, I will tell you all where she could shove that protein powder. You almost got me. Okay. <sighs> okay. Um, he... He's going to be a medical consultant for protein powder, which I guess is more important than being a doctor. Okay. Um, so, oh, ooh, there's a second surprise. Um, he's found a way to make her life more meaningful. She's going to be his sales consultant and what is definitely a pyramid scheme. <laughs> <laughs> if you come at me and tell me you're going to make my life meaningful, you can just fuck off with that bullshit. How is selling protein powder meaningful? I don't get it. Then he gets mad because she's not like super thrilled about the whole idea. And then he pouts and he's like, it meant we could be together every day. Um, yeah, and no, don't put me down for that. I know people who both live and work together with their spouse or significant other, and they seem like happy people, but it's definitely not for me. Mm. It would be fun for like two weeks because if you think we'd be sneaking off to have sex somewhere in the building, you are correct. Um, but after that, it would totally suck. Like, what do we do when we get home? Uh, talk about the same people we spent the whole day with. Okay, so there was a brief period that Sarah was a substitute at the school where I taught. And if you tell me how fulfilling it was, I'm going to punch you. No, absolutely not. I hated it. The whole ride home every day was quiet because we were working an hour from where we lived. So then it was an hour of dead silence. And also all my friends liked her more than me at lunch. So it was, in fact, deeply unfulfilling. I'm so sorry for your loss. I am um, scarred that my wife is the most likable person on this earth. And I may never get over it, Erin. Like... I just need you to be prepared yeah, for I, that kind of baggage in this relationship. I do. I do love your wife quite a bit. Um, <laughs> You're not helping. I know, but she's so nice and she gives me good medical advice. That's true. That's um, fine. I'll allow it. Because I, it's because I don't agree, disagree with her on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> also, we're very much alike. So Yes, that is true. <laughs> Y'all both put me in place and I need it all the time. (laughs) So Grace finally agrees to do the protein powder thing, um, at least on the side. Um, Sassy arrives for girls' day but runs into Dr. Paul, who's like, "Mm, uh, mm, Grace isn't home. She had a last-minute flight, blah, blah, I'm lying. Um, Then Paul has the audacity to tell my favorite character in this movie that Grace isn't going to be able to see her for a while because she wants to make changes in her life and not slip into old habits. And he sits on a throne of lies. 
Yeah, I'm really concerned you're uh, holding back right now. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sassy is not having any of this, just like I'm not. And she's like, cool, bro. Thanks for letting me know. I'll definitely call her myself. Bye. <laughs> um, later, Paul is super shammered on the couch and deleting the messages from Sass on the answering machine. I'm sorry. We seem to have skipped over the fact where Grace is nowhere to be found. Okay. Um, Paul is going through papers and finds a phone number. He calls and asks for a room number and a guy answers. He demands to speak to Grace, but the guy's like, have another drink, buddy, and hangs up. Um, he calls another number, which connects him directly to Grace for reasons. And, um, Grace is asleep and he starts screaming at her about the other guy she's clearly with. She asks why he's calling. He's like, I can call you any goddamn time I want. Oh, yeah, you're um, canceled. Aaron gave you a warning, a, sir. Yeah, she says she has an early flight the next morning, and she's like, I can tell you're drunk, just sleep it off. And so they meet in a diner to talk it out when she gets back. She calls him out for his jealousy and telling Sass that she doesn't want to be friends with her anymore. He, of course, gaslights her and says that she just that he just goes crazy when she's not around. But he does it because he loves her. And he's not going to apologize for loving her. I was wondering how he could make this all her fault. And he did. There you go. Um, uh, the best solution to this, be, um, of course, is that she should become his business partner and quit her job as a flight attendant. Oh, I mean, that's, I was going to say that's the only solution. So I'm glad I didn't have to. He also already called the airline for her. And as long as she has um, two flights a month that she works, she gets to keep her pension and her benefits. All she has to do is say yes. It's a win, win, win. Um, also, I'd like to speak to the airline that gave out that personal information to not the employee. Yeah. Um, so she says yes. I mean, we have to remember this was the 90s or whenever it was in real right, life. Where women <laughs> didn't have rights. It's true. Um, uh, we really still don't I know. have a lot of rights. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she says yes, and they go to a conference, that is, and this is for sure a pyramid scheme, like definitely. Um, they start making lots of money, like those at the top of a pyramid scheme typically do. They look up, <laughs> and Travis Alexander's on stage, old T-Dog. Um, they're moving in boxes, and Grace finds a whole box. Oh, wait. Did I say they bought a house? No. Oh, they bought a house. With the um, MLM money? Yes. Okay. They're moving in boxes and Grace finds a whole box of legal documents from Paul's past charges for harassment, sexual battery, medical malpractice, and being a peeping Tom. Oh, shit, girl. You better run. Of course. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Doctors get sued for crazy stuff all the time. They just want my money. However, it turns out that he gave his practice to his daughter because of the lawsuit, which is why he now has to sling protein powder for a pyramid scheme. Great. I hate it. 
Finally, he slaps her. So she throws something at the wall and leaves. Um, I guess she comes back later because she wakes up and Paul is sleeping on the couch surrounded by beer bottles, which is just charming. Um, she goes to meet Sassafras to talk to her about it. Sass is very concerned, as one naturally would be. Right. Um, and tells her that she should for sure leave because she's a good friend. Um, of course, this is not what Grace wants to hear, which I'm not exactly sure what she did want to hear. Um, and so she tells her off and accuses her of just thinking that because she doesn't understand how long-term relationships work since she doesn't have one. Oh, shit. Don't sink to that level, Grace. Sass is still a good friend, though, and is like, we are literally sitting here discussing someone who hit you. Thank God. Thank God for a voice of reason. <clears throat> yes, this is why I love this woman and I need to meet her. Um... Grace cries and says that when things are good, they're really good. But when they get bad, and I feel that, um, Grace decides to stay with him and says if he does it again, she's absolutely leaving. So she goes home to talk to Paul about things and finds the entire house covered in papers with I'm am sorry, written in very noticeably serial killer handwriting all over the walls. Wait, it said what? I am sorry. Oh, I thought you said I'm am sorry. And I was like, dude, should have never been a doctor. <laughs> I am sorry. Um, la da da da. Choo, 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 choo. This is literally my worst nightmare. Uh -huh, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um... He begs her for forgiveness, says he's perfectly happy to talk about the lawsuits with her. Then he apologizes. Oh, and then she apologizes, too. For for what? Making him mad or upsetting him or whatever. I hate it. Um, she voiceovers that there sh she should have seen it coming, but she was so in love. She saw what she wanted to see. And I have been there and I get it, but I'm just like screaming at my TV for her to get out. Right. Oh God. Um do, do, do. they throw a party and he invites all of his friends, but none of hers. So I'm gonna guess Sassafras didn't show up for this one. No, she was not invited. He makes a toast and then he proposes. You can tell if she wasn't surrounded by people, she would have said no. Which so is why he did what he did. Right. Yeah. She calls Sass and tells her. They talk about how overwhelmed Grace is and Sass offers to come see her. But Grace is like, no. Sass is like, are we really not going to be friends because of Paul? Um, and she's like, no, I just, he just needs, uh, he just needs me more than you do. And she's like. I don't need you, Grace. I thought we were friends. Oh, shit. But then Grace walks in, or then Paul walks in, and Grace basically hangs up on her. So, cool. Um, <clears throat> Paul asks if Sass wanted to, quote, take you out to party like a couple of college girls. In fact, nobody wants to do that, Paul. He says he could tell she wasn't super thrilled about the proposal, and she says that they have 
issues still and you need to work through them. And Paul's like, oh my God, what issues? I drank ginger ale this whole evening. Oh, good. Fixed. Um, we see some scenes of them getting along in a scene where she comes home after a 27-hour flight. Oh, hold on. I didn't realize the uh, severity of the, of the scene when I was typing this. Um, okay. So there are scenes of them getting along, and then she comes home for, from a 27-hour flight to a five-course meal that Paul has prepared. Because when you've been up for 27 hours, you definitely just want to eat a five-course meal with champagne and then have sex. Right. The 400-day-long sex capade you mentioned earlier. Yeah. When she says that she's really tired and just wants to go to sleep, Paul has a complete meltdown. He destroys the entire dining room and then points a gun at her. That's not okay, bruh. She runs upstairs instead of in, instead of outside, which um, I have done that um, mistakenly as well. Um, and then she locks herself in her room. He starts yelling and pounding on the door because she won't come out and let him apologize. So naturally, instead, he shoots twice into the door so she knows he's really sorry. Oh, you know... That's just called a Texan apology. We all learn it. You learned it in Texas in fourth grade. No. She wakes up the next morning and Paul is asleep on the couch. So she runs out to the car and takes the fuck off. Um, she goes to a women's shelter and at a meeting, she tries to justify his behavior because he shot at her way above her head. And if he really wanted to kill her, he could have. Poor baby. That's awful. So she just doesn't really consider herself as an abused woman. Um, there's another meeting where Grace gets on her high horse about how she's not going to be giving Paul multiple chances while other people clearly have. Um, right now, Paul is just learning about life without her, but he loves her and he doesn't want to lose her. So this will 100% change his behavior. Okay. And I was like, oh, honey. Oh, honey. She goes on to justify his behavior and how she's not making excuses, even though she absolutely is. They talk about a chart of warning signs of abuse, and Grace says that Paul exhibits hardly any of those qualities. The counselor is like, sis, he should exhibit none of these qualities. Right. Um, that night, she waits until everyone is asleep, and then she calls Paul. He tells her how sorry he is and how his behavior was inexcusable. He's going to see a psychiatrist who says he's bipolar, but he's on meds now. Everything is super fine. The payphone um, disconnects her. Sass comes to visit her and offers to let her come stay, but she says no and go home and goes home. She thought Paul was supposed to be gone, um, so she was just going to pick up her cat and like leave again. But he decided not to go on this convention he was supposed to be at. So he just explains how he's not that guy anymore. It wasn't him to begin with. It was scared him. He sees it so clearly now because he's on medication. And he's super sorry and doesn't want it to end like this. And Grace says that um, she doesn't want to throw everything away over just one night. And she decides to stay as long as he gets rid of the gun and never hurts her again. Poor thing. This is just awful. Yeah. 
So they get back to normal life. Um, and which Grace describes in her voiceover as bliss. But, quote, months of happiness could be wiped away in a split second. One day, Paul goes to check the mail and opens something from the women's shelter addressed to Grace. So he brings her the letter and starts interrogating her about why she thinks she's a battered woman. He brings a shake to her, a protein shake, and is like, hey, drink this, and then we should go on a hike. They go out, and she starts feeling super dizzy. She decides they can keep going on the hike. Later that night, she's sleeping and calls out for Paul. She says she needs to go to the ER, but Paul says he's a doctor, and she definitely doesn't need to be in an emergency room. It's just a virus. And, like, hearing someone say it's just a virus in 2020 was super triggering, actually. Right? Um... So the next day she stumbles into the office looking for Paul and discovers that the phone lines have been cut. Oh, shit. Paul comes in and says it's just an outage and he also had to take her car in to get worked on. And also he's like, you look super pale. You should go back to bed and I'll make you another shake. Don't do it. Sass comes by looking for her, but Grace can't get out of bed to go see her. Um... <clears throat> do to do to um paul tells her tells sass that grace left and he doesn't know or care where she is also he tells her that she he's armed so she better be careful coming and knocking on his door grace stumbles out of the bed and looks at the shake and then starts to go to the kitchen where lo and behold she finds poison i would like she to believe fakes- that it's just a big green bottle that just says poison because Lifetime is... It's like a white... It was like a white container that was like had other writing. I think it was like supposed to be a pesticide or a weed something. Okay. But it was... But like it did have a poison label on it. It just like Lifetime has been too, doing too well so far that I wanted yeah. this to be like the obviously Lifetime thing where it's just like a toxic green bottle. <laughs> She fake spills cat food everywhere and then goes to the... And so um, Paul goes to the store to get some more. Grace, while he's gone, Grace takes Ripley and leaves. That's her cat. She's walking down the highway and who pulls up but Paul asking her what the hell she's doing. She pretends she doesn't know what's happening, so he takes her home. Um, He makes her another shake, which she dumps down the drain. Um, She tries to, quote unquote, help with the yard work. Um, later that evening, Paul gets drunk and is casually burning stuff in a barrel, like you do. Right. Um, he calls, he calls okay, her out now, for to be fair, I'm would... from a small town in East Texas. Getting drunk and burning shit is a pastime of ours. Um, he calls her out for thinking that she, he was an idiot by pretending that she could, she didn't know what was happening. He grabs her by the hair and starts beating her, screaming, you never loved me. Um, then he ties her to the bed and rapes her. Don't like um, that. He tells her he's going to kill her and then goes to get um, a gun out of the safe, which is actually full of many guns, so he did not get rid of any of them. Um, Grace manages to get out of her ties, and she runs while he's loading the gun. She has just a ripped shirt on, no pants, and she's just, like, booking it through the dark woods at night barefoot. He chases after her, and she keeps running. 
she hides in a horse stall in a barn. Someone comes into the barn with a gun, like flopping open the door and stuff, but it is actually just the owner of the property. She asks, like, she begs him to please call the police because someone is out there trying to kill her. He wraps her in a horse blanket, and I assume they call the police because the next scene is Paul still looking for her in the woods and then hearing the sirens. The next morning, we just get some gorgeous nature porn of Oregon. Okay. Uh, oh, I want to move. <laughs> Grace voiceovers that Paul escaped that night, and she had to go into hiding move to an island, change her name, etc. It's two years later and she's working on her new life. She opens a box with a photo of her and Sass in it. Paul is in a hotel thinking he sees Grace, but it's not her. But he starts flirting with the girl anyway. Grace pulls out her old answering machine and listens to the old messages. She finds one from Tom, the guy from the beginning that joined their little protein powder business. Oh, yeah. From the first two days after she was attacked. In it, he says, like, he's leaving a message. And he's like, oh, shoot, I dialed the wrong number. And then hangs up. Which convinces Grace, me, and the fact that there's not much time left in this movie that he knows where Paul is. Um, she takes it to the police detective. And so they go back to Tom's house to look again. Tom refuses to let them in and asks if they have a warrant. But suddenly there's a great crash and Paul comes running out of the house and into the woods. What a dumbass. But he does get away, so... <clears throat> the detective assures Grace that Paul will eventually make another mistake. Grace goes to see Paul's daughter and begs her to tell her to tell Grace where Paul is, but she just tells her to get out of the practice. Grace starts looking at the Christmas cards and notices one from... Jackpot, Neva and Dad. Neva and Dad. Cut to them in a diner. So Neva, Paul, and this other guy are in a diner talking about shakes. Um Oh, I'm sorry. They're not in a diner. They're in a dining room. Ugh. Uh Neva brings out dinner and they talk some more. I'm just waiting for the cops to show up. Instead, Paul loses his temper with company over, so you know he's done it in private, saying that the chicken is raw and accusing Neva of trying to kill him with E. coli, which is a really bad murder plot. Right? Um, instead, no. Then he calls her Grace before he storms out of the house. Their friend is like, I'll go talk to him. So he goes outside and is like, hey, Paul, who's Grace? <clears throat> Um, Paul says that she's quote the one that got away and then in the next sentence he says she's a slut who betrayed me you know that's two sides of the same coin yeah Grace is at home googling Neva um, Neva's at home reading the paper and definitely missing the most wanted fugitive bat, uh, ad on the back Ugh. page finally after nine million commercials she sees it she slams the paper in front of paul who says he had to change his name because he was falsely accused by an angry ex-girlfriend this happens to lots of people they just want his money yeah um do 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 crap uh neva's like um no at the same time grace is at her house telling the detective to go back and check or to go check on Neva. Like, she's found her address. And she's like, go check on them. 
Um, she calls the sheriff where Neville lives, and they're like, yeah, we're going to go out and find this guy. At Neva's house, there's a big discussion going on. Thankfully, or not so thankfully, the guy from the dinner party shows up. At least there are witnesses. Mm-mm, spoiler alert, no. Um, so this is all inter- this is all shot together, like um, the police driving, and then like the three of them having this discussion okay. where Neva's like, "You should go talk to the police and clear this whole thing up." And Paul's like, yeah, totally, like, let me get my coat, which I think is code for let me get my gun. Um, I am unfortunately correct, but the police are in the driveway. So they're, like, knocking on the door, they're knocking on the door, and they're at the wrong fucking God, house. Lifetime. Hey, also, Lifetime, look at you. Like, you really pulled all the stops out this week. Yeah, uh, um, so just as they... The lady answers the door and is like, oh, no, she moved. Um, Paul shoots and kills both Neva and the other guy that was with them. And then he shoots and kills himself. Grace voiceovers that she feels like there's more she could have done. She's sitting at home and there's a knock on the door. And it's Sash. She found her. Yay. They go to the or she goes to the support group. Um, She sits. Um. She goes to the support group again and reads a letter that she wrote to Neva about how she really wanted to help her. And she feels so guilty that she can't uh, or that she couldn't. Um, and then she talks about the warning signs of abuse. And looking back now, she can see that every single one applied to her. And that's it. That's the end. Wow. Man, that's good. Yeah. It was a good movie, actually. I liked it. All right. Well, like I said this week... Um... This week, I painted a portrait of a person, so I was really listening. But actually, I really was mm. listening. Um, but... I know. Um, this week, I read Mortal Danger by Anne Rule. And last week, I called her a queen of true crime. And I think I might want to take that back this week. And I will explain as I go into my notes. Um, so, um, I also used an article from Distractify and a couple of other places, but my main content came from Mortal Danger. So, um, I just want to start by saying maybe I'm reading this the wrong way. That is a possibility, but I find Anne Rule to be extremely victim blamey in this book particularly. Um, I find her to be that way in... Basically everything that I've read of hers. So maybe it's just that I have become a little more sensitive to that because um, as a cis white male, that's one of the things I've had to overcome in my life. And so even though I have loved true crime, not seeing inequities and not seeing um, microaggressions is something that, um, that I think white men particularly are trained to do because like we benefit from everything. So I have to, you know, like reading this with a new... Um, more discerning eye has been interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I used to think of her as a queen of true crime, like not not Michelle McNamara status by any means, but I still thought of her as like a queen. But after reading The Stranger Beside Me and now Mortal, da- Mortal Danger, I'm finding her less and less palatable. Um, yeah, so, I'm not a big fan. So this, I mean, you knew that, right? But I'm not a big fan. So this is a quote from the um, 
prologue of this book of the foreword rather um, she said sometimes i shudder to think of how many stories i have told about cases involving possess- possessive controlling men and hapless hopeless women and already i don't like this terminology yeah um she says although they are all true and involve scores of couples who don't know one another and never will the three-act play of each relationship might well have been written by the same author the first act is all about romance and trust it moves along so gently that the woman who will soon be captive never senses danger the second act is a slow progression he cuts her off from her friends her family her job and her self-respect until she finds herself dancing to whatever tune her formerly perfect lover chooses to play the third act can end one of three ways. One, the emotionally, imp- the emotionally imprisoned woman gives up and remains with the man who forbids her to leave him. Two, she escapes from him but is left with a constant sense of someone silently stalking her. Or three, their love story turns tragic and she dies at his hand. In the possessive lover's mind, she always belongs to him. He finds perfectly re- he finds this per- perfectly reasonable, and since the trapped woman had the audacity and cruelty to run from him, she deserves to die. With every case of domestic violence I write, I'm hoping and praying that I will warn other women who are on the verge of turning their lives over to a man who has shown them only a mask, a facade. I want to shake them enough to make them back away in time. I also hope that I may give women already captive the strength to leave. But when a woman is entrenched in a sick relationship, it's difficult to escape. She may have no income of her own. She may be very afraid. She has to find some place to live, some way to support herself, some way to secure childcare. She may also have to locate shelter for her beloved pets. And I don't know. Something about the wording of this hits me weird. Like, it is it is atypical of anyone I know who've ever been in an abusive relationship to not know they're in an abusive relationship. And the way she says it is like, I'm going to write this book that saves everybody because they're going to read it and realize it's them. Like, no, <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to chime in and I'm going to try to keep my temper checked yes um and i'm apologizing right now for anything that i don't know and i'm happy for you to correct me if i misspeak like i need to say that at the top that i may come across as insensitive and it's just stupidity um that whole thing was bullshit that whole quote um instead of talking about what women need to do to escape abusive relationships or avoid abusive relationships she misses the large point of just men shouldn't abuse women. Thank you. Thank you. That's like a hundred percent full stop way to prevent from women from being abused is if men stop abusing women or if, if abusers stop abusing their partners. Right. Right. That is 100% effective. Thank you. So that's, that's and the more that our society accepts abuse, especially by men as, Oh, that's just how like, boys, boys are. will be that's boys. How men are. Yeah, fuck that. And they built themselves like a nice little judicial system where we talk about their future instead of the thing that they have done. We talk about how jail is going to ruin their future instead of the fact that they raped a woman behind a dumpster. Right. Okay, I'm glad that... Fuck you, Brock Turner. (laughs) I'm glad that I didn't extrapolate something different than you did. But that's all I could think was like... it. 
and it's not quite victim blamey, but it's right there on the edge where like, why aren't we blaming the abusers? Why? Oh, I think it's very victim blamey. Okay. I think it's very victim blamey. Like, it's like, oh, well, you're in this situation and now you have to get yourself out of it. She does, however, close this forward with a quote. Instead of being the fact that, I'm sorry, I'll oh, say one more thing and I will stop talking. Um, Instead of the fact that um, it should be like, you are in this situation, you should rely on these systems in place, social work, the police, people that, that you should be able to rely on to help you in these situations, but they they don't um, the majority of the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we can look at this on even like the smallest level. Um, hold on and I'll give you the name. Ross Lynch played him. He was the cannibal. Hold on. Dahmer. So I was like, it'll yeah. come to me. Dahmer's victims were brought back, like the survivors were brought back to his place. Police would, like, especially the time he got caught, when a guy escaped and told the oh police. Oh my God. Police when the guy him, escaped and it was. Yeah, the police put him in the car and was like, okay, tell me everything that happened in this house. Fuck no. Like, the police aren't protecting anybody in those situations. And that's not the same, but it's a clear, like, story that shows how police do not have people's best interest in mind at all times. And I'm not saying they're all bad, but I'm saying there's a lot of reevaluation we need to do. Um, yeah. So, anyway, sorry. Apparently, I pulled out a soapbox that I was not prepared for because I'm, like, red-faced now. Um, I'm prepared, but I'm going to stay <laughs> off it is. Well, I didn't expect police to be the thing I bitched about. Not this early, at least. Um, however, she does close... Oh, I always expect the police <laughs> to be what I bitch about. Um, she does close the foreword with a quote that rings true. And I wish I could, like, shout it from the rooftops and, like, I don't know, maybe into the Oval Office and, like, directly into the ears of every domineering man I've ever met. Um, she says, strong, confident men have no need to control. Only those who are empty inside have to, or they cannot survive themselves. So, like a broken clock, you can be right twice. Um, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. That's, yep. So, now to talk about um, Kathy Ann Jewell, who went by Kate, who was um, the grace of your story. She was born in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Her father, Harold Jewell, worked in, an, in the accounting department of the Cooper Bessemer Company, which manufactured compression engines for over 175 years. And her mother, Hannah Laura Erlanger Jewell, was a housewife. So Harold was born and raised in Mount Vernon, and he joined the Marines right out of high school and became a paratrooper. He was actually among the first wave of Marines to hit Iwo Jima. And um, he was one of the very few in his company to survive the war. His job was to be the last man to leave the landing ship tank, which was this amphibious vehicle that um, was designed to land battle-ready tanks. He was to gather all the guns and ammunition that were left behind. Um, and once during the war, he had dug himself a foxhole in the sand and pulled a piece of roofing tent over him. Um, he fell asleep and prepared, like he fell asleep 
for a little bit prepared for anything to happen. And, um, he was awakened in the middle of the night and told by a commanding officer to return to the shoreline to prepare for an unexpected Japanese attack. The attack never came, but when he returned to his foxhole, it had been destroyed by an airstrike, 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 and he had narrowly escaped death. Um, so well he almost he almost died right there over there <laughs> <laughs> so um hannah laura kate's mother was born in germany to a jewish father lothar and a christian mother mina although they were not allowed to marry at the time lothar's father forbade his son to marry a non-jew so hannah laura and her sister Margot were sent to live with a nurse from the local hospital it was only when her parents had a son that her grandfather permitted Lothar and Mina to marry. And Hannah Laura, uh, Hannah Laura and Margot went on to live with their birth parents. Um, her foster mother, who was the nurse, had a daughter named Katya, um, who adored Hannah Laura. And it was this, like, it was a mutual feeling. They just kind of... Um, it was almost a more loving relationship than, like, typical sisters. They just had this really close bond. Um, and Hannah Laura had this, um, super happy childhood until 1939 when she was 11 and suddenly, um, was ostracized for being Jewish and living in fear with her family. Somehow though, Lothar managed to get his family out of Germany on the very last ship that left before the war began and they escaped the death camps, but only narrowly. Ten years later, after the war ended, Hannah Laura actually found Katya and they reunited. And so she named her daughter Kate in honor of her old friend. Um, so all this to say that Kate was born to incredibly strong parents and as a result was incredibly strong in her own right. She became a flight attendant for American Airlines back in a time when... Um, they were still called stewardesses and they still had to be very fit and beautiful. Like that was the primary job requisite. Um, it was a career that many young women aspired to there were a lot more applicants than jobs. Um, and it was still considered a glamorous profession. And this is why I was saying like when she was flying, um, she was actually still making, like making a lot of money. This was back when flight attendants were kind of this, Elite. Thank you. Elite or um, profession that she'd gotten into. Um, in fact, when she was on layovers, um, she would sometimes even stay in luxury hotels like the Fairmont in Dallas. And, um, but she would also go on volunteer mercy missions where she would, um, like sleep in a sleeping bag on the dirt floor of a hunt of, of a hut in some, um, developing country. Um, she went to Nepal f several times. She volunteered for the Dr. Tom Dooley Foundation. I thought you were about to say something. Um, mm, no. Many okay. of her many of her flight, uh, fellow flight attendants did the same thing. Um, by Nepalese law, they were only allowed to stay in the country for about three months at a time. And so then they would leave and come back after they'd spent some time flight attending again and saving up their, like, storing up their savings. Um, because they weren't allowed to work in Nepal, the law said that they couldn't take jobs that belonged to the citizens of Nepal. Um, and on one of these trips to Nepal, she actually contracted cytomegalovirus and never could shake it. Um, 
So by 1973, Kate had moved to San Diego where she would fly out of the American Airlines base there. Um, she was passionate about health and nutrition. She was a strict vegetarian and she even got a job as a nutritionist in the early eighties while still maintaining her flight status with American airlines. Nice. Um, by 1989, she was in her mid thirties. She became concerned with her health. She stayed active. She swam and she hiked and she exercised often. Um, but she'd put on some extra weight and she had developed a dime-sized sore on her nose that she felt was related to the cytomegalovirus. Um, okay. So to help her get past these things, she scheduled an appointment at the Bayview Medical Group in uh, Mission May. Mission okay. Bay, not Mission May. I typoed and didn't fix it. <laughs> Doc- sure. Dr. John Brandon had a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Santa Fe College of Natural Medicine. He didn't have an MD, but he acted as if he did and performed tests that he should not have necessarily been performing. He would draw blood on people, even though he wasn't certified to do that. And um, he touted himself as a medical, as a natural medical doctor, which is not really a thing. Like there are, there are medical doctors who, uh, will use more natural and holistic approaches, but yes. um, they also know that medicine's kind of important sometimes. As someone that's researching like holistic health and how it um, connects to the mind body kind of spiritual practice and trying to maybe like get into that field. Oh, I do you know can my tell place the energy aggressively. Is... Yeah. But I do know my place as aggressively. I am not a doctor. Right. So I'm not going to offer you medical advice because I'm not licensed as a doctor to offer you medical advice. You want to take a yoga class or have me tell you about, you know, um, changes you can make to, like, make yourself, like, a happier person or um, to try to, balance, like, create some more balance in your life. I can tell you about that all day long. But don't ask me for medical advice. Right. I can't even tell you to take Tylenol because I'm not licensed. Uh, I have a friend who is in school for um, Chinese medicine. And she's learning acupuncture and um, other kind of holistic ancient Chinese practices. And she still calls Sarah when she needs medical advice because she doesn't think it's the same thing. You know, but it is important. Mm -hmm. It is. Anyway... Dr. Brandon walked in for this first appointment. He was well-dressed in a custom-made suit and an expensive tie. And um, Kate said, quote, I thought he was about 35, but he was actually 44. One thing I remember about that first meeting was that he had the most gorgeous, almost glowing skin. Kate would go on to say that Dr. Brandon was not her type. She usually fell for their tall, dark, and handsome men. And then she even joked in the book that um, that almost always meant they were unavailable in some way or another. Um, She said, but he was average height. He was blonde. He was kind of balding. He had a knobby nose, but there was something about him that had a certain appeal. And of course, Kate wasn't interested in dating him at all. She was only here for his medical and nutritional expertise. And he was married and had two daughters, one of whom was his front office manager and uh, was on her way to becoming the youngest certified acupuncturist in California. 
the other um, was worked at SeaWorld, and she sometimes subbed in at the front desk of her older sister for her older sister, like when the older sister was taking classes and had a schedule conflict. Um, they were also beautiful and fit, and they had that same perfect skin that Doctor Brandon had. Um, but in contrast, his wife seemed glum all the time, and um, this is. <laughs> Kate and um, Anne Rule's commentary, not mine, but she was overweight. I obviously don't care. There's no fat shaming here. But Kate mentioned that it was an odd contrast for the wife of a well-respected nutrition expert. So that December, about eight weeks into her treatment, Dr. Brandon confessed that he was falling in love with the 38-year-old Kate. And they began dating. The next year, he separated from his wife to be with Kate. Um, at this point, Anne Roll said, quote, Every woman in love with a married man believes that her relationship is special, that no one else feels as she does, and that her being with him isn't really illicit because the two of them are in love and there are, there are extenuating circumstances. And with rare exceptions, they all get hurt when they learn that their romance isn't special at all. There is a predictable progression, but it doesn't seem predictable to someone caught up in it. And again, Anne Rule, sit down. Yes. Um, so unbeknownst to Kate at this time, though, Brandon, Dr. Brandon, um, oh, sorry, at the same time that Dr. Brandon was wooing her, his neighbor was suing him for peeping at her through her windows. Um, okay. Cool. So the female neighbor's complaint read, quote, early in November 1989, I was forced to call the police regarding my neighbor, John Brandon, and report him as a peeping Tom. He was watching me over the fence through my windows. This was not the first time he has been caught doing this. Early in the summer of 1989, John Brandon was also caught watching over my fence. When confronted, he runs off. I am just, I am afraid he may do me some harm. So when, okay. um, when he responded, it was in an affidavit saying, quote, I am a doctor with my own medical group. Woohoo. I have many leather bound okay. books and I'm very Congrats. important. Um, and then he called his neighbor emotionally unbalanced okay first of all this is like the the equivalent of strolling onto a crime scene and being like don't you know who i am Uh uh-huh fuck you and then he went on to say that his neighbor was just angry at him for reporting her to the like the hoa for having too many cats and subsequently to to that report that he filed seven of her eight cats had been removed so basically his defense was that she was a crazy cat lady and he had a degree um so he was better than her what a fucking asshole great i'm excited so within the year he would also begin sessions with a female client who'd go on to sue him for medical malpractice, sexual battery, failure to obtain informed consent, assault and battery, fraud and misrepresentation. And this was like after he'd left Whoa. his wife for Kate, he was like, you know what? Let's just try one more. Like, let's just roll the dice and see what happens. So, um... Cool. Uh- 
This former client um, noted that he wasn't a medical doctor and wasn't licensed to provide many of the services he performed, including massages, drug prescriptions, blood draws, as I mentioned, and vaginal exams. How is he prescribing drugs if he's not a doctor? You know, that's the million dollar question. So Kate knew vaguely of his second lawsuit, but Dr. Brandon lied about the details and insisted that he'd done nothing wrong. Go figure. After the suit's dismissal in 1993, Brandon handed his business over to his daughter and stopped going into the office, grew a beard, grew his hair long, and began to disguise himself. He started routing his outgoing mail through Katie's sister, Connie, who lived in Florida, to make it seem as if he were a Florida resident and no longer living in California. And then it was a disappearing scheme that he'd repeat when Kate charged him with her assault years later. So he would essentially, anytime he had things to mail, he'd put them in a big like manila envelope and address them to Connie from Katie. And then in the envelope would be um, lots of letters and little envelopes with like stamps on them that were pre-addressed and he would have her send them out for him. Okay. Um, so after, so after he sold his practice and he grew out this long hair and, um, started being real bizarro, they decided to spend some time traveling together. Um, and after they were done traveling, they decided to settle down somewhere on the Oregon coast. They settled in Gold Beach, Oregon, um, which had been this sleepy little town that turned tourist trap in the past 15 years. Um, the locals actually hated the tourists coming in, but it did bring commerce to their little town that had been dying up to that point. So they accepted it as whatever. Um, so Kate and John rented a little cottage surrounded by trees. It was a rent to own scenario and they intended to buy it one day. Um, but it was here that Kate began to really see John's anger. When he was mad, he might punch or kick holes in, in a wall. Once he took a ring that he'd given her and hammered it to pieces. Cool. Yeah. The fuck? Right? Um, Jesus. In her interview with Ann Roll, she said, quote, John wouldn't wear clothes inside if we'd worn them outside. He insisted on changing so we wouldn't bring in germs. If I sat in his chair with street clothes on, he freaked. I had to be really careful when I washed dishes and make sure I wiped the sink to get rid of bacteria and water spots. He usually had to go back over and do it, which was also a way of, to erode my self-esteem. Great. Um, John was also horrified once when a neighbor brought... Kate, a cat that had been run over by a car, she cradled it in her arms trying to find a pulse, but there was none. And when John saw the dead cat in her arms, he screamed at her to get away from it. And then he said, don't you know that bacteria and germs jump off animals when they die? And now I'm questioning who gave him a doctorate in anything. I didn't. Um, I have questions about the jumping bacteria. Yeah, listen. Okay, so you're like, you know the five-second rule, right? 
This yes. is like the inverted five second rule. When something dies, all the germs have to jump off within five seconds. Oh, sure. Right. Um, so, um, their futon. Oh, hold on. I lost my place. Vamp for me. Um, I don't know how to vamp. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. Can I, you hear me drink some wine? Okay. <laughs> I scrolled down three pages, then I was like, what? none of this looks right. Um, okay, so their futon had to be made a certain way. The bedding had to be folded just right and put away, and their towels had to be folded to his exact specifications. Um, when she'd cook, he would hover over her and, like... If she set a spoon down that she'd been stirring with, he would pick it up and wash it. Um, and he would like clean up behind her, which wouldn't bother me so much. Like someone else is cleaning up for me. Bye. But I can imagine it's obnoxious that somebody's always hovering over you telling you you're doing everything wrong. Um, she said, quote, there were times when I thought he might have even been involved in some strange in some kind of crime. But that seemed ridiculous, and I blamed my own imagination. Um, so he had yeah. once told her about meeting with CIA agents when he'd only been buying a convertible top. Um, so he was like, I went, did I ever tell you about the time I bought a car and instead I um, met with the CIA? It was crazy. Like, um, they wanted to know about the germs that jump off things when they die and like I mean I assume that that's the CIA's top priority is the germs that jump off a dead animal um, she said that into the mid 90s he would behave as if he were in a spy movie like there was one time he donned a disguise to avoid being served with a suit for improper sexual advances um, he okay. also had a code he used when he wrote letters, apparently for no reason. He used Kate's last name, Jewel, intermittently. He sometimes alluded to her being involved with, sorry, he sometimes alluded to her that he was involved with important political figures in Florida, but he never gave oh, any sure. names or details. It's Florida! <laughs> But yeah, so he he's like, so um, when the CIA was done with me, like, um, uh, you don't know this, but I'm the penultimate Florida man. Right. Um, but yeah, so he'd do things like he would, when they'd get out of the car, he would like look around and then take off into his house and shut the door and lock it real fast. And like, like, okay. Every night, she said, John had to lock the door and rattle the doorknob exactly seven times to make sure it was really locked. Um, she said that drove her nuts, but what disturbed her more was the first time that he hit her. They'd had an argument at a campground on one of their trips. That's pretty disturbing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, that, w- that was Anne Rule's word, and I'm like, I could have come up with like seven other ones, but we'll go with Anne on this mm-hmm. one. 
Um, so they'd had an argument at the campground and then later he made a big show of like berating himself and he swore he'd never meant to hurt her. Um, he didn't mean to leave marks or bruise her. And then he begged her forgiveness and over and over this cycle happened of the forgiveness and she'd give it and he'd beg and he'd feel so bad and then he'd get so mad and then he hit her and you know, the typical abuse cycle that, that Anne Rule thought she'd cracked the code on in the top of this book. Um, but even though he promised that he wouldn't do it again, it happened several times. Um, and often after he, he'd had too much to drink. Um, and this is just where I want to take a minute. Anybody on earth who's listening and, and say that if you're giving an apology, it only counts if the behavior stops, dumb motherfucker. Yeah, um, saying you're apologizing with no change in behavior is nothing. Right. So, um, eventually Kate began leading John. Um, and Aaron, you're actually the one who taught me the statistic about uh, the amount of times a woman tries to leave her abuser. Um, 20. And I have always found that interesting. You taught me that. God, what case did we do that you taught me that? Early, pretty early on in our lives, I feel like. Um, I don't know. But, um, so she would leave, but not for long. Every time she left, he'd hound and berate her family. He'd call all hours of the day and night, and he'd drop in at their houses unexpectedly to demand information on where she was. Um, and so she would eventually return to him because she was worried about the way he um, disrupted the lives of those that she loved. Like, she felt a little bit guilty and responsible that he would come and scream at her family um, so on the occasions that she wouldn't come back right away, if he could find her, he would stalk her. He'd call her constantly. Um, he would insinuate himself into all aspects of her life. He'd be get, he'd beg her to come home and say that he couldn't live without her. And so on one of these occasions, she... Uh, she flew home from where she had been and he met her at the airport and he's like beaming brightly. And he's like telling the people in the airport, like, that's my girlfriend. You see her? That's her right there. That's my Kate. Um, and she looked surprisingly less than happy to be back with him. Um, and that caused this big public scene in the middle of the airport. Um, where she felt the need to apologize to everybody for his behavior. Um, Great. So all of this kept building and building until one night uh, in May of 1999. So on the evening of May 29th, 1999, Kate fled her home in Gold Beach, Oregon. She was running from her. She was running from John William Brandon, who had just raped her and then attempted to kill her. Um, after that, so she, um, much like your story, she wound up hiding kind of on the property of a neighbor, and the neighbor helped her call police. Um, after that, he disappeared, and she spent several years just trying to ensure that he didn't find her and hurt her again. Um, while also trying to locate him to prevent him from harming anyone else. Um, 
And so, unfortunately, police and FBI agents did not catch him. And the story ended as Kate told everybody it would. Um, He killed the next partner and then killed himself afterward. Um, so can we talk about the term killed themselves for a minute? Uh Uh-huh. Because in my mind, there's a distinction. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't know if other people feel the same way. So if you are a listener, like I totally invite you to email us because I really... To me, like this man, I wouldn't, I don't mind saying killed himself because uh-huh. he did it to avoid getting caught for right. something that he did that he knew was wrong. This was not a completion Whereas of suicide in my opinion either. Yeah. Horrible. Like that people that have mental illnesses and then complete suicide, to me, it's a different spectrum, but maybe I'm wrong because I feel the same way. And that's why I wrote it the way I did. And I didn't say he completed suicide. But then I'm like, suicide, wait, but... is the narcissism like uh, the a mental illness and I should be more um, sensitive to it? But I don't. And maybe it's because I have direct experience with more than one narcissist and I don't feel that way. And so if anyone has like good insight about that, like please, like I'm serious, like email us at lifetime sentence podcast at gmail.com because I'm really interested in this, in this differentiation. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So I'd written this paragraph a couple of times apparently, and I knew that I'd given more information. So let me, so um, like I said, May 29th, 1999, he tied her up. He raped her. He held a knife to her throat and then he threatened to cut her up and throw her remains into the ocean. And when she was able to escape, she ran and hid in a neighbor's house. So I like, I was like, I knew I had the details Uh cause it was rough. Um, and then he, as she was laying there, he whispered in her ear, this is the night you're going to die. Um, Great. Yeah. So, um, there. Okay. So I tied up my story early and I knew I had more information and it's in those three pages I'd scrolled down to earlier. So, um, when she left, she filed charges against Brandon in Curry County. Um, and as I mentioned, he disappeared, which made it impossible to take him to court less than two weeks after the attack. He sent a letter to her postmarked from a small town in floor in Oregon. Um, but Kate, um, knew of his history routing his mail through Florida to hide his location. So he, she assumed he wasn't actually in that small town that was near her. Um, Mm -hmm. a month after the attack, she receives a call from an ACLU attorney, um, who said that Brandon had contacted the ACLU. The lawyer hinted that Brandon would come forward if Kate would help make sure prosecutors sought a lower sentence than typically handed down for the crimes he'd committed. Um, But he refused to provide any contact information for, like the lawyer refused to provide any contact information. Um, So she said she absolutely would not seek a lower crime. Um, She... um, also suspected that his daughter, the one who inherited the practice, was helping him or sending him money, but she was afraid to keep talking to the daughter 
in case she revealed anything about her own location to Dr. Brandon. So by July, the FBI began working on the case. And um, at the same time, Kate was trying to make headway with the case to find Brandon and prevent him from harming her or any other woman. She was also trying to rebuild her life and try to stay in hiding. Um, And I found a quote that I don't know if I copied let me see um yeah so tk logan who's a behavioral science professor at the university of kentucky says quote Mm -hmm. stalking victims often have to absolutely toe that line between being the investigator and figuring out how best to protect themselves um protecting oneself absolutely she says Um, protecting oneself from the perceived threat of stalking is not just a toll on your psychology. It's also a toll on your physical health. Mm -hmm. So um, to stay in hiding, she decided to move to Orcas Island in Washington state. There she would introduce herself to everybody as Chris White. She continued using her legal name and social security number at her job with American Airlines, but convinced the company not to give out her contact information or even reveal to anybody that she worked there. Um, Right. So while she was moving out of her home in Gold Beach, she got another letter from Dr. John Brandon. This one was postmarked in San Francisco. In it, he pleaded her to ask prosecutors to seek a lighter sentence and also indicated he thought she'd keep living in Gold Beach. Um, So she was pleased that he thought she was still in the area and to throw him off her trail even more, she took a page from his book by sending letters to to her friend and like she still had a friend in Nepal for when she used to make trips. So she sent a pack of letters to the friend in Nepal and asked that friend to send letters to her friends and family um, so that it would convince uh, Dr. Brandon that she was out of the country if he ever showed up looking for her. So she'd written all these letters to her sister and parents. And um, if he found any of them, they would be postmarked from Nepal. So she did stay physically safe from him on Orcas Island, but she is suspected that he was looking for her. Um, sometimes she would receive these unsettling, like hang up calls. Um, right. Right. And so eventually she realized that she couldn't keep looking for him forever and that she had to make, like make a move to protect herself and to take care of herself. Hold on. Sorry about that. Bless you. Thank you. Um, so in 2007 news broke that a man living a few hours South of her in gig Harbor, Washington had murdered the woman. He called his wife 66 year old Turid Bentley, um, injured their friend, 49 year old Randall Nazawa and killed himself. Um, so, um, investigators soon discovered that the murderer who went by the name John Williams was actually John William Brandon, who'd been living and hiding all this time. After learning that, Don't say. right. After learning that Brandon had murdered a woman, Kate actually expressed a lot of survivor's guilt. Um, TK Logan, that psychologist I mentioned earlier, um, or behavioral science professor, I mean, says, quote, this is a very normal human reaction to a predator who has not been held accountable for his actions. 
Even though it is the abuser, not the survivor who is at fault, the victims of all predators typically feel guilty. Um, yeah. So the next year, Anne Rule published her book featuring Jewel's story, uh, Kate's story, speaking with the island sounder about the book. Um, Kate said she wanted Rule to tell her story so that she could help other women recognize and escape abusive relationships. Quote, I've had this sense that because I survived, I have a duty to others. I told my story to Anne with the hope of helping someone else not go where I have been. And that is the story of the incredibly strong Kate Jewell. Well, I am holding my emotional support cat, even though she wants to <laughs> She's like, then. she's like, I don't support you. I support nothing. And then she went and took a puff but on your. But then she comes back for more pets, right? Like, literally, she's like, also pet me. <laughs> and she took a puff on your lost inhaler and licked your ballet shoe and just went about life. It's fine. <laughs> All right. So, what are we watching next week? I can't remember the name of the movie. Is it another annual one? Yeah. Okay. It's the the other annual. <laughs> That's fine. Just um, we'll be watching that if you'd like to join us. Um, keep an eye on our social media. We have uh, hopefully something. A murder to fun. remember. A murder to remember. Isn't that an ID That's show? Yes, but this is a movie based on an annual book. Oh, A Crime to Remember. That's um, the ID show. Yes. Um, it is based on... Well, shit, I don't know. It's based on a, mo- on a movie. On a book. I don't know. That's fine. And it gets a 2 out of 10 on IMDb, so I'm super pumped. Perfect. Um... Hurrah! I think it's actually from the same book. It's from um, Mortal Danger. Because Mortal Danger, the first uh-huh. five or six chapters are Kate Ann's story. And then um, uh-huh. the next several chapters are a different story. There's three or four stories in this book. So, Okay. Well, we'll do that next week. Oh, no. Apparently Yay. this is Empty Promises. So I will be reading the book Empty Promises and getting this story next week. Excellent. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Well, Can't wait. thanks, everyone, for joining us. And um, yes, thank you. Don't forget to find us on social media. Erin, where can they find us? Yes. Um, on Instagram at Lifetime Sentence. On Twitter at Life Sentence Pod. Um, you can find us on Facebook.com slash Lifetime Sentence. You can email us at lifetimesentencepodcast at gmail.com. Our show notes and everything are at lifetimesentence.com. And please join our Patreon because we're having a great time over there. Patreon.com slash lifetimesentence. Yay! Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. And guys, this is more important now than it has ever been. Don't forget to eat your vegetables. Charge your phone. Wear your masks. And wash your hands hands. there. All right. And don't touch your face. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This has been Lifetime Sentence, where the truth really is stranger than fiction. Thanks for listening.